it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Alrighty, friends, welcome back to our agriculture conversations on the LaneCast Ag Podcast. As we look at the Endangered Species Act and efforts in certain states to reintroduce certain predators, it's a cause for concern, especially for producers in those states and also for producers that have experienced said reintroductions. We're going to be talking about wolves and the uh, effort, of course, in Colorado to reintroduce wolves into the state. And uh, we have a great lineup of guests here today. We have Terry Fankhauser, Executive Vice President of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, along with the Montana Stock Growers Association's Executive VP, Jay Bodner. Uh, first off, uh, Terry, uh, how are things down in Colorado here today? Yeah, I mean, Colorado's an interesting place to live. Um, <laughs> it's changed over the last few years. Um, and, you know, wolves are just one of the issues, I think, that that change is, is bringing to the state. Um, you know, it, it, it's still a really great agriculture state. It's, uh, you know, it's just like a lot of other things in life sometimes, and I don't mean this derogatory to citizens or things like that, but the people are what, what causes the problems um, in most cases. So, yeah, we're working through it, and uh, it's going to be kind of a long haul for for the industry in Colorado to get back to a place they feel fairly comfortable. And also, uh, uh, Terry, uh, your uh, delegation, as did Montana's delegation, just returned back from Houston, Texas, at the uh, 2022 Cattle Industry Convention. Uh, uh, how did that convention uh, go for uh, for the Colorado cattlemen's? And uh, what 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 are some of the updates you can share on some of the initiatives, some of the policy that uh, uh, Colorado cattlemen's maybe brought or supported throughout the convention? Yeah, I think it was a good meeting. Um, there was really good business sessions that went on. Um, I think for us, one of the main things we wanted to continue to see is more transparency in the markets and um, livestock market reporting or or um, is is something that we've had issues with throughout the years because Colorado and, and many of these Western states don't get any of their cash trade reported um, and a piece of policy passed to move that forward uh out of the working group the other thing that we kind of focused on is really something that's systematically being problems throughout the united states and that's this this backlog this challenge in finding workforce as well as logistics like transportation um it was startling to me to find out that if we were to open up more international trade and create more value for our product today there's no way we could service that this is the first time in our history we've ever had that be the case. So um, there's some policy that passed around that. But I think for me, that's probably the largest issue this industry is going to face is is workforce and, and, and you know, adequate transportation logistics. Well, thanks for that update. And uh, again, so many issues impacting the industry and, and throw throw on some uh, uh, wolves into the mix. It uh, it, it creates uh, quite the, the conversation. Uh, Jay Bodner with the Montana Stock Growers. Jay, I know you are en route to uh, a farm show up in northeastern Montana, uh, but uh, how are things up in Montana today? And uh, maybe same thing. How, how did the cattle industry convention go for uh, Montana Stock Growers? Yeah, I might just start on that. Um, certainly, I think we would agree. I would agree with uh, Terry. You know, the meeting is, it's always good to get in person uh, to discuss some of these issues because they're pretty complex. 
And uh, there's a lot of good viewpoints to get brought out in these. And certainly, so the cattle transparency, you know, the live cattle marketing, that was a, certainly a, a priority for us to kind of work through some of these issues and, and really what's best for the livestock industry is in general. And so we were supportive of the policies that got passed there. We did bring down two policies um, that we were successful. The first dealt with um, actually this situation that we're seeing up in Canada unfold with vaccine mandates. And uh, really those, uh, that supply chain is very critical to Montana and really to the U.S. in broader scope. And um, we're facing some, you know, severe restrictions in, in disruptions in that supply chain. So we want to uh, deem those workers as essential workers to make sure that uh, we can continue the flow of goods that happens between the U.S. and Canada. Um, right now, they just did close down the, the sweetgrass port again. And so we're seeing some of those things happen. So we were successful in getting um, agreement that, that uh, those workers are, those truckers are essential workers, and, and hopefully NCBA can help support that in, in that effort. The second one dealt with um, some of this, uh, what we're seeing in the administration today, just with climate change, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we bought uh, a policy also that recognizes that cattle can help in reduce these wildfires, who is a huge emitter of greenhouse gases. And we really wanted that recognition to occur, you know, as these um, federal agencies ride an environmental in impact statement or environmental, environmental assessment, the EAs, um, a lot of times they're going to recognize uh, this greenhouse gas. And so we want to make sure that, um, you know, cattle are, are, are recognized as a re help to reduce that. And so... Um, it was once again successful. Um, our, our fellow cattlemen agreed with us, and, and so it was uh, a good policy, I think, to get on the books again. Uh, in general, in Montana, um, certainly we have uh, a lot of the issues that other states are facing. I think one of the, the bigger concerns that we're looking at right now is just uh, what's our weather going to bring? Is it going to bring us some moisture or not? We were in pretty severe drought conditions last year. Um, did see a pretty big reduction reduction in the cow herd, uh, hay stocks were down. So uh, we're hoping to get a little bit of moisture and, and start to rebuild some of that cow herd. Certainly would like to, to be flush when the cattle market's on the upswing. So we'll, we'll hopefully that's the case when we, uh, when we see that happen. And I think we're going to have another year of grasshoppers also in the Big Sky State, uh, according to the uh, two days that I uh, listened in to the Grasshopper Management Board online meeting. That uh, I did hear that also. Yeah, I, I think every uh, new reporter that it, it doesn't matter the news uh, a platform should have to attend the Grasshopper Management Board meeting and, and tune into that and, and report, not just a, a seasoned veteran like myself. I, I can't call myself a seasoned veteran, <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously so many issues impacting the, the cattlemen and women uh, across Montana and Colorado. And uh, jumping back to our conversation about wolves, uh, Terry, could you... Uh, Fill in our listeners that aren't familiar with what is going on in Colorado. As you mentioned, uh, the citizens of Colorado have uh, really been, been the uh, driving force behind having wolf introduction. Could you just walk us through how uh, ballot initiatives uh, have been pushed forward and uh, what the Colorado Cattlemen's Association and other agriculture and landowner groups are doing to uh, 
bring awareness to this situation, but also uh, be a voice for their members that are truly concerned about its impact. You bet. Um, it's interesting. The West predominantly has the ability to pass initiatives and referenda, um, which gives, uh, you know, in, in the days of statehood, this sense throughout the West, it gave the citizens a voice in their government. And uh, that's, that's a, uh, you know, that was a fundamental belief at one point in time, and, and, and many good things probably passed because of it. Um, in the recent years, uh, being, you know, the last 25 or 30 years, um, we've seen that initiative process in a number of states that have a fairly easy bar to achieve, um, start to see more activist orientated, more conditioning of the citizens government, as well as the administrative bodies and states began to be amended. And uh, it's really not the intent in some states have worked hard to raise the bar, if you will, make it more difficult to, to adjust those referendi or amendments. Um, we're in a pro we've done some of that in Colorado we're in a process of doing some more. It's gotten really egregious in Colorado. And one case is, 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 you know, we have game management agencies that are responsible for hunting licenses, protecting endangered species. It's a very complicated biological situation. We saw our first issue of ballot. Well, not our first, actually, because we outlawed spring bear hunts. We've outlawed leg hold traps in Colorado in the last 30 years. Now, more ballot box biology um, is that we're introducing wolves that are fully recovered, in, the, in my opinion. And one judge disagrees now. But in my opinion... And frankly, the opinion, again, of a bipartisan federal administration, um, two different administrations, um, are now, we're going to introduce wolves in Colorado. And the citizens barely passed this initiative, 1%. Um, and it's on designated lands west of the Continental Divide. Remind you, though, every county, except for two on the west of the Continental Divide, opposed it. It was a front range vote, um, which won't have wolves introduced in their backyard. Uh, there's some irony there. Um, so we're go we, we by 2023 have to come up with a plan, uh, the end of 2023, come up with a plan to have a viable reproducing wolf population with no limits on the number of wolves that are introduced. So we're going through a planning process right now with the state and stakeholders to determine number, to determine location, to determine management, to determine compensation, all of those things. Fortuitously so, we've had wolves migrate into Colorado in the recent year or so since this has passed, and they have begun to do what wolves do. They, they find mates, they raise pups, they get pups to a level where they need to train pups, and pups and said parents are beginning to kill livestock and other dogs, uh, other animals, um, and really playing this out in real life in front of us. So um, there's no changing this unless we were to change the ballot process or, or, um, or the initiative that passed or the General Assembly could do it, our legislature, uh, but they've never changed a citizen initiative in their life. And they won't change this one.
Uh, and the governor certainly is advocating for this and wouldn't sign the bill anyway. Okay. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. Um, and, you know, the next two years are going to be telling to see really what happens. And, you know, in Colorado, they still treat wolves as endangered. Um, but we'll be advocating with our friends in other states um, and appealing process, you know, if we have to appeal whatever we have to do to recognize that, you know, wolves are not endangered in this country uh, and to treat them. So is going to be devastating to big game populations and livestock producers. And Terry going off of, uh, that, that statement just yesterday, the date would have been February 10th, 2022, a, a federal judge down in California. They, uh, put wolves, back on the endangered species list for most of the U.S. Uh, it, that judge reversed a Trump-era rule that removed the Endangered Species Act protections for wolves across most of the U.S., and I should point out this does not apply to wolves in Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming, where the state will uh, uh, continue to uh, control that wolf management plan and hunting. But uh, Midwestern states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan uh, are going to be impacted by this rule. And also on the West Coast, states like Arizona, New Mexico will be included in that. And then Colorado as well. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, ruling actually holds up uh, by the time the 2023 uh, plan uh, deadline submittal for Colorado works out. But... um, it's clear to see this uh, politics really come into play with the the wolf management here. And uh, in Montana, this is an issue that we've been going through for almost over two decades. Uh, Jay, could you walk us through for our listeners unfamiliar uh, with Montana's uh, wolf population, the plan to introduce hybrid wolves uh, as well, uh, and uh, just really the role that stock growers played throughout the uh, this reintroduction process? Yeah, so we've been working on this uh, wolf issue for um, a number of years. I had to actually go back and look at some of the statistics. So you go all the way back to 1995, 1996. uh, The idea at that time was we're going to reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone National Park and they're going to stay there. Well, we quickly found out that that wasn't the case. We recognized from a livestock producer that you know, that is not an island. Um, wildlife freely move uh, across the state and outside of the borders of Yellowstone National Park. They, they put uh, reintroduced two different populations into that park. And when we looked at um, certainly the upward trend of those population levels, it was a very steep climb, climb out of there. Those, those wolves, um, increase their population at a trend rate that was just astronomical. And uh, along with that then comes um, certainly the uh, migrations of wolves outside of Yellowstone National Park into much of western Montana. And we faced many of the same issues that Colorado is just starting to face now where, you know, increased livestock depredations and really um, no effort. We had no management tools in place to be able to defend our livestock. And really, even at that time, Montana, when we looked at uh, the distinct population segment, the the lines that they had drawn in Montana, we had part of the state that was endangered, part of the state that was in the experimental population. So we had two different sets of rules that we were dealing with at the time. And so it was 
you know, extremely confusing, extremely difficult to manage anything when you have an arbitrary line drawn across your state and how you're going to manage these populations, which is the same population, but two different sets of rules. So it was uh, certainly a, a difficult time and place. You know, at that time, we, we hadn't even drawn up a state management plan. So, you know, that, that takes years. Uh, we were very adamant at being at the table, trying to draw up a state plan that at least put some sideboards in place. We wanted to put at least some, um, you know, potential uh, numbers that were, you know, we're, we don't want to exceed these population objectives were wolves, uh, but we actually blew right past even the numbers that were put in place. We, we needed to try to meet um, some of the, the numbers of breeding pairs, you know, to keep a, a viable population, but we far exceeded those also. And really the only reason we got wolves delisted in Montana is we, we did have a couple of rules that were put in place. They, they did fail. Um, it took a congressional action, and that's the only reason this this court ruling today um, is uh, has you know excluded Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming is that it took congressional action to to uh, to delist them. So, um, yeah, we certainly feel the pain that uh, other states are going through, and we look at that from Oregon and Colorado, and and uh, it uh, it's just uh, something that we faced years ago, but um, we certainly feel for those producers. And also, Jay, there might be folks listening in on the, to this uh, conversation that aren't involved in, in, in livestock production. Maybe they're an outdoorsman, and and maybe they do, you know, want to see healthy populations of, of all wildlife. C- could you maybe talk about just, uh, you know, farmers and ranchers, they're, they're a part of the landscape. They're stewards of their land. They want healthy landscapes. They want healthy wildlife populations as well. But the, the big kicker here, though, is when there's not a management plan in place or a way to to defend your livestock uh, as well. We're seeing that with the with grizzly bears now, part of that conversation. But could, could you maybe address the, the outdoor uh, conservation maybe perspective of why they believe that livestock producers are wrong in this discussion? Well, I think, you know, you have two different sets of kind of um, conservationists out there. You do have the, the hunting population, that I think look at it a little more realistically. And then you have certainly the wolf advocates that uh, are going to be uh, not have the same view of things. Uh, from a sportsman perspective, I think um, initially when you go way back to the reintroduction days, um, I think there was some kind of appealing aspect of I get to go hunt a wolf and that might be kind of fun. Um, so they were not strong uh, opponents to wolf uh, reintroduction at that time. What they did see, though, as quickly as those populations, you know, increased dramatically, there was huge impacts on uh, the elk populations. So, you know, calf recruitment rates went uh, down to the floor. So you had, um, you know, severe reductions in elk populations in, in mainly western Montana at that time. And so it did impact elk hunting, which is, you know, certainly one of the most popular uh, wildlife to hunt in Montana and other states also. Um, and so they uh, started to uh, actually be a little bit stronger voice and we need to have some management tools to reduce these populations. Now, the wolf advocates, I mean, certainly from their view is that, um, you know, this is an animal that even though we were seeing a slow reintroduction, we, we, we were having wolves come in from Canada, uh, that wasn't quick enough for them. They wanted to have more 
and more and more. And uh, whatever it takes to increase that population, they were willing to, to do that. And uh, so they were, a, you know, certainly a, a loud voice at the time and a loud voice today is that, you know, we need to reintroduce these and uh, set the balance of wildlife uh, correctly in, in these reintroductions. Um, but once again, you know, they, they are very strong in opposition to any management tools, any harvest rates. Um, you know, if you remove one wolf, that's too many. And so we're pretty diametrically opposed to, you know, those viewpoints. You know, when you really look at it, you need some balance. You need some management tools. You need some harvest uh, to occur to keep populations in check um, with any wildlife. But you can just reimburse ranchers for those losses, though, some, some might argue, though, Jay. So a lot of people do say that, and that is a common theme. And, you know, uh, that is, uh, for one, we, we find about one in eight that are confirmed kill. So we know that a lot more livestock are lost than are actually confirmed or even probable. And two, it doesn't uh, cover all of the other costs. We actually did a study on weaning weights for cattle in uh, wolf recovery areas. That's a 25 pound reduction in weaning weights. You do not get covered for that. You do not get covered for reduction in, uh, you know, loss of pregnancy rates or when those pregnancy rates go down. So, you know, people kind of think, well, you guys are, are, are covered, you're, you're made whole. And that's certainly not the case when it comes to wolves. And I'm glad you brought that up. You, you talked to uh, producers down in the big hole, for example, where wolves, uh, wolves are all over down there in, in southwestern Montana. And when uh, I, I've talked to producers that have shipped out uh, one day and they still had uh, steers left to ship out the next day. And just the, the amount of weight loss that they got because wolves were not, not, they weren't even in the pen. They were just in the vicinity howling, causing that fear. Those cortisol levels just spike. And uh, it, it's just, we, we try to make sure our cattle, of course, are uh, as calm as possible. We work them easy. But when you add an apex predator in there, it could even just be a German shepherd they see 500 yards away if they've been exposed to wolves all those studies show it like you mentioned Oregon State has wonderful studies as well on just uh, the the fear that livestock that have been exposed to wolves uh, the impact that has on their health but also on the amount of that financial loss that you don't see <laughs> you see it on the on the scales uh, I, I think that's important to point out but Gentlemen, we're just going to take a quick sponsor break, and, and I want to talk about those uh, Canadian wolves introduced into Montana, and then that leads into our conversation of why the Montana Stock Growers is uh, opposed to any Montana wolves being transported to the state of Colorado. We're going to take a quick sponsor break, but we'll be back with Terry and Jay right after this. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association is the definitive voice of cattle producers in our nation's capital. NCBA is working on behalf of its members to protect your operation from government over region rising taxes but the cattle business is under pressure and we need every producer to join us to protect our way of life join ncba today and help us protect the future of your farmer ranch visit ncba.org or call 866-233-3872 for more information Again, as we return back with the Montana Stock Growers, Jay Bonner and the Colorado Cattlemen's Terry Fankhauser, um, uh, we're, we're discussing wolves, wolf management plans, reintroduction. And Jay, you mentioned uh, uh, when, when Montana was uh, 
selected at Yellowstone National Park, of of course being the main uh, center there to, for wolf reintroduction. The the wolves uh, were rapidly introduced uh, from Canada, and uh, historically those are not the wolves that at once one time roamed uh, across Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. Could you could you walk us through just how? Uh, introducing a predator that traditionally had not been in that sector uh, of of our uh, roaming region really impacted uh, the wolf management and and uh, also depredation of wildlife and livestock. Yeah, so when you look at the genetics of those wolves that um, I mean, typically were in Montana, we have a historic wolf that was you know uh, taken in the in my hometown area of Stanford the white wolf is legendary you look at the size of that wolf and it's not much bigger than a coyote uh, the wolves that we um, went up to Canada and actually paid um, about a million dollars to get those wolves out of Canada to bring down into the reintroduction area in Yellowstone these wolves are much larger and um, certainly I mean they uh they're a larger predator. They can take bigger prey. They can travel farther. They're uh, certainly a more robust animal. They're they're harder to harvest. Uh, they're very smart animal. So something that Montana had never seen uh, previously. So they had a um, a much larger impact on our wildlife, on our livestock, than anything that we had seen before. And really, from you know a Montana perspective, when you reintroduce. Uh, that type of apex predator uh, into the landscape that's much more developed than it was 100 years ago. The impacts uh, to wildlife, to livestock were something that uh, I don't think anybody had really anticipated. And so it, it uh, was uh, pretty severe and, and continues to be so, um, even with the, the tools that we do have in place today. You know, it's it's mind-boggling sometimes, especially when the federal agencies get involved with reintroduction of species or eradication of species. As you mentioned, that that uh, that species and genetic uh, uh, line of wolves not historic to Montana, yet the National Park Service for quite some time, some days they want to eradicate the population of mountain goats in parts of Yellowstone National Park because they weren't natural there. Uh, they've been reintroduced. And then when we look at wolf management, I, I, I just uh, it, sometimes, uh, I, I guess, as just uh, a person not involved in day-to-day decisions in, in wildlife management, I just shake my head sometimes at uh, why you'd want to depopulate mountain goats. They're not doing anything up on that uh, mountain other than eating <laughs> And in my opinion, somebody's probably going to send me a big old long email explanation on why that needs to occur. But um, obviously, as we look at that effort to reintroduce wolves into uh, Colorado, I want to, before we talk about Montana's efforts to oppose uh, Montana wolves going down there, uh, Terry, uh, obviously we've discussed how the wolves just exploded and they they went into to new ranges, new new environments uh, here in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. Has there been any studies done on if the reintroduction did not, if that wasn't pushed through on, on how many years a, a population, uh, a viable pop hunting population, I, I guess, for the public to mm-hmm. hunt in Colorado? Has there been any studies that said, you know, five, ten years that even if they weren't introduced, they, they would be uh, fully all over Colorado? Yeah, no, but I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is, is to look at what's happened in Wyoming and Montana and then the, the movement of wolves out of Idaho West. Um, the, the, 
They're very prolific, number one. Their survivability is high, um, and, and they travel uh, immensely. So I think Colorado um, you know, didn't take a close look at that. There was an acknowledgement by our game management agency early on that we would get wolves and they would they would present themselves in places and in populations that the environment in Colorado would sustain. Um, and they had sort of a live and let live until you need to manage them policy. And that was that was informed by biologists, that was informed by our game management agency. It was informed by evaluation of what took place in other states, and more importantly, really tracking what's going on in Colorado. The irony of, of a lot of this is, is there's more wolves in Colorado that are being reported, and Fish and Wildlife Service and Parks and Wildlife know that, but they're being, they're, they're not allowed, they're, they're being, that information's being withheld. Um, and, and I know that because I sat down with previous directors of uh, the the division um, of wildlife and uh, looked at the GIS uh, and GPS coordinates of those wolves and know that we have two more packs in Colorado at least several years ago than what's being reported now. We have breeding taking place more than what's being reported now. And uh, the interesting thing about Colorado though is, is, you know, will wolves want to stay here? Or is Colorado, and, and I think to some extent, you know, they will. They, they will evolve. They will habituate to the state. We have tremendous population in Colorado. You fly over this state at night or you take a satellite image of this state at night, it is littered with light. Um, there is a vein that runs zigzagging down through the middle of the state with wilderness area uh, that's very narrow that wolves could survive and live in, but they won't be able to at large population levels. We believe that naturally they would figure that out and have probably already in Colorado in some reality because we know there are a couple packs in those areas and they're very seldom seen. Um, but if you force wolf introduction you pressure wolves into an area that are introduced and already have some presence of free ranging wolves. Not only are you gonna develop conflict between those populations of wolves, you're going to develop other conflict in the state. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how all that plays out. Maybe they all, you know, are, my other concern is they go west or north, right? I mean, if I'm Utah, I'm extremely concerned about what Colorado's doing because you have a channel of rivers and highways that all lead into Utah. And there's, you know, they're not hunting wolves the way Wyoming are is I, I start to get really concerned if I'm Utah about what Colorado's about to do to them. So, so, Jay, as we look at, uh, obviously, Montana, uh, the wolves already listed. Uh, there's a hunting and trapping season for wolves, to, to, a part of that management plan. And uh, so, obviously, 
we we are on a trajectory where we can manage wolves. But uh, back to the letter of opposition to the state of Montana providing wolves uh, to the reintroduction process in Colorado. Uh, could you walk us through why why this is important to the Montana stock growers uh, to, to share their experience, but also just their opposition to uh, the relocation of wolves in the Montana, greater Yellowstone ecosystems and all over the state to Colorado? Yeah, so when we look back at kind of wolf reintroduction into Montana, um, you know, it started in, like I said, 95, 96. Um, and then we put a management plan in place. But it took, you know, virtually 20 years. We're still uh, tweaking our legislation, our management uh, effort in uh, in what we can actually accomplish and, and what tools we have in place to, uh, to deal with, uh, you know, the wolf reintroduction. So, you know, we put rules in place, we put seasons in place, and we put legislation in place. But once again, that's taken 20 years to get there to be able to at least defend our livestock um, and at least um, put a hunting season in place uh, to, uh, to, to lower that population somewhat that at least lessens um, the, the impacts to livestock producers in Montana. And so when we looked at our neighboring states, um, of Colorado, um, we know what they're dealing with and uh, what they're going to be dealing with. And we said, um, we know that Colorado's looking at other states to, to reintroduce, capture those wolves from either Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming most likely, and to, to buffer and, and to, to bolster their, their populations. And so when we had met with our uh, fishing game and uh, kind of had that discussion with them, uh, our board of directors right away said, you know, we do not want to contribute to the hardship that the livestock producers in Colorado are facing, but are going to face more so if, if we help bolster that, that population. So right away, we, we decided, we made the decision that um, we're going to uh, contact our fishing game, we're going to contact our governor, and we're going to say, whatever you do, don't send any Montana wolves. You know, initially... If you ask a producer, they would say, well, yeah, send them all. But, you know, when you really come to realistically looking at the situation, you're like, you, you quickly realize if we send 50 or 100 wolves, that's not going to make any change in Montana, but it's going to have huge impacts in Colorado. And so we said, don't send one. Um, if you have to go get them from somewhere else, we, we would like to at least, you know, increase that hurdle a little bit. Uh, because we know that once again, you know, there's no management. You can't haze a wolf, I don't think, in Colorado if it's killing your livestock. You know, similar to what we see with grizzly bears. And so, uh, I think it's important that we stick together with livestock producers. Livestock producers should not shoulder the burden of these kind of reintroduction efforts, and that's what happens in these kind of cases. Now, also, Terry, Colorado is such a uh... Uh, it, it seems that there's always something coming out of the state capitol <laughs> in terms of uh, discussions, policy appointments uh, from the governor, from the legislature that uh, that just put agriculture producers in very awkward or uh, bad situations. Uh, and uh, we, we've <laughs> again, it, it just it just seems to be a revolving door of um, what I will call anti-agriculture initiatives. Um, what, what are some of the current uh, 
issues within the state government that are very concerning to the Colorado cattlemen's and to Colorado agriculture. Uh, I know you were recently quoted in a, uh, a very uh, in-depth investigation piece done by uh, the Fence Post with uh, Rachel Gable. Uh, just what, just uh, bring our listeners up to speed on what what's going on in Colorado politics. Sure, sure. Well, let me start with by saying, you know, the 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 association and what has been a tremendous, um, I guess, viral uh, appreciation for Montana and Montana stock growers uh, related to that position. I mean, we all understand the reality of implications. Wolves will still be found somewhere and brought to Colorado. But, uh, you know, we're still in a people business in this industry and frankly ought to be in in the West as a whole. And uh, that was a very... uh, very appreciated statement that was made. And uh, um, it really, again, uh, is made the rounds in Colorado in a, in a kind of a magnanimous way. And uh, we just, we want to say thank you. Um, as it relates to Colorado, Colorado is, again, I don't want to throw Colorado under the bus because that's not what we're about here. Um, we're about, you know, lifting up the industry and supporting the industry. And it's still one of the best places to go from pasture to plate with, with beef cattle. Um, what, what we have in Colorado right now is anything ranging from, number one, we have a population of people and elected officials that are very disconnected from agriculture. Even though the vast majority of the state finds agriculture to be something that they want and, and need, um, when you have extreme activist groups, legislators, or others come into the equation and start to paint a picture that's well-funded, people look at things, you know, and I've read a lot of, with a lot of campaigns, if it seems reasonable, people want to believe it. They want to believe that you're being honest with them. Um, And that's what's happening here is, is that the, that that's taking place in our current administration in my opinion, at the very least, is guilty of creating space for that sort of behavior and that sort of um, d- d- very, very focused attack on the industry to take place. We have never found ourselves in a place where our highest elected officials don't stand up for Coloradans. And we're, we're there now. Quite simply, we're there. That's the least of which that I believe, um, you know, we could we could say, uh, you know, uh, our top leaders are guilty of. At, uh, you can let your mind run a little further and say that well, maybe in fact it's worse. We recently had a piece of legislation on the heels of wolves, knowing that wolves were a bad decision. At a piece of legislation that we were able to strike down, led by HSUS, that will be on the ballot in 2024 to prevent hunting of fur-bearing animals like mountain lion, mm-hmm. lynx, bobcat, things along those lines. The, 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 the process worked, you know, that people had their day, but as long as this ballot process is so, so easy to use, and you don't have prominent leaders in the state standing up and saying, no, these things will pass. So the piece that you just referenced recently was the hiring of a position in our Department of Agriculture. That position 
is important because it does the investigative work around animal welfare cases. Um, some in livestock, mostly in pet animals. Uh, the livestock line of, of investigations has always been done by state veterinarians because you want to make sure both on reportable and transmissible diseases that you're not looking at an animal that you believe is being starved when they actually have a highly pathogenic disease that could spread quickly. That's why you use a veterinarian. That's why you use a state veterinarian to do those things. Now we are going to have a position, a person that ran the Rocky Mountain Wolf project, not just in Colorado. I'm, this spread all the through the Rocky Mountains. It was headquartered out of Colorado. She was the lead on that. She will now be the 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 chief individual in charge of animal welfare investigation in Colorado. She also is currently collaborating on a project with Mercy for Animals. These are the people that roll up onto a dairy or a feedlot, and they absolutely believe animal abuse equals raising animals for food, and they will steal livestock. And we've confronted our administration about that choice, and they have told us quite candidly that the job has a description. People's behavior won't bleed into their job. Well, if that's the case, this will be the first person in history that that's true about, number one. The other thing that we asked, will these projects, these other projects be discontinued? Well, not necessarily. So we could actually have somebody that is statutorily directed to promote and advocate for the animal, the livestock industry, livestock that are raised to provide food and fiber, working in her after hours to end livestock production. You can't write this stuff. <laughs> so that's the situation we find ourselves in. And a firm line is being drawn, uh, I think, uh, around this to say enough is enough. And we all know how these things end up. Um, at some point in time, you know, and Jay, I think Montana had this at one point in time with the governor, maybe. But uh, you, you draw firm lines in the sand and hopefully those firm lines lead to a conversation that you can agree that you're not going to harm each other at some point in time. So that's where we're transitioning to. We'll see if we get there or not. But I tell you, the injurious situation and the lack of trust and the degradation of support um, is, is unfortunate. It really is. And Terry, just with that appointment, it almost reignites the conversation and maybe efforts of Initiative 16, which, of course, uh, uh, the, the industry in Colorado and all the surrounding states came together to oppose and, and ultimately upended that. But uh, yes. it's concerning. It is concerning, you know, and we had a piece of legisla legislation brought this year for the Animal Legal Defense Fund um, that would have been just as egregious as Initiative 16 or the PAWS Act, the piece that Oregon is essentially facing now. They have hunting involved in theirs. Um but yeah, our Supreme Court ruled unanimously that that was procedurally not correct. What they said, what they, what they essentially said was, is wow, you're reaching way too far and way too harmful. But the only way to fix these things is to take away the tool, as well as, you know, when you sworn into office and you raise your hand, 
you you need to and you're asked to uphold the constitution of the state and the laws of the state you don't get a chance to cherry pick which ones you're upholding you need to uphold every one of them now terry as you mentioned there's uh, other initiatives down there and efforts uh, again uh, to to ban the harvesting of burf, uh, fur bearing animals and, and when i when i look at all the outdoor outdoorsmen and uh, hunting uh, uh, instagram pages that i follow they they're following this closely too and and so many times uh, and and i see it on social media and i know you do too is when you have outdoorsmen that uh, just get frustrated sometimes with uh, private versus public land issues. And, and that could be a whole other podcast that we have. And I would like to do one with an outdoorsman and a, and a landowner and a, and a rancher and a public lands use a multi-use aspect of this too. But this is a perfect example of how sportsmen and agriculturalists need to work together on species management and having a, a collaborative effort on advocacy. What, what, what is uh, what would be your uh, pitch to an outdoorsman that uh, just truly doesn't understand livestock production, but understands that, hey, to have healthy wildlife, you have to have management plans, but also cattle are involved or sheep are involved in that. What 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 would that conversation look like? And what's the importance of agriculturalists and uh, outdoorsmen working together? You bet. Well, it's a little bit of the same conversation I think our industry has to have with each other. Um, we've got to quit making it easy on our adversaries uh, to tear us down. Um, we're very few. Uh, and I go back to, to Colorado in its, in its, uh, early days. Um, like many States, we had fights with say the, the cow calf producers with the feeders about brand loss. What we've learned is we don't air that in public anymore. We have those conversations behind closed doors and we learn to look at the bigger picture. And I think we're seeing that evolve uh, much more cohesively with sportsmen, which have been a really, in, in Colorado, they're a very independent lot. Um, In-state versus out-of-state licenses, you know, like our landowners are the ones that provide most of those out-of-state hunts. They're very expensive. They're very prime, prime hunts. And of course, in-state hunters look at those and they're like, well, that's, you're taking that opportunity away from me. It's our wildlife population. And we've learned how to start to move through some of that. But we are, you know, one of the first things that I did once this piece of legislation did not pass on mountain lions, lynx, et cetera, and we knew it was going to go to the ballot in the future, I said, I called uh, a number of my contacts in the sportsman industry and said, hey, I'm not trying to run anything for you guys. Um, but we're, we're here to help. We're here to at least lend some experience. Um, we were appreciative of those who helped us when we first started out in this, this sort of thing. And we've had good dialogue about that. But I, I think the overall message is, is that if you enjoy your natural resources, if you see value in those natural resources, you see value in food animal production and food security, that we've got to pull together. And it's gone even beyond sportsmen in Colorado. Actually, we have a large group that continues to meet with like the city of Denver, um, our, all of our counties, our universities, um, et cetera. And we invite our agriculture department and others to it, but we control the narrative and the discussion. Um, and that helped us with that proposition or that initiative 16, because we, 
I don't believe that there's a rural urban divide as much as I believe there are people that want to manifest a divide so that they can take advantage of it. I think we have a lot of friends in agriculture and metropolitan areas. We just need to open up to them and engage them and not disparage them. And they the same toward us and we'll find common ground. Well, I, and I like that you brought up the point that feeders and cow-calf producers, if you have a disagreement, you talk about in the hallways, you get it resolved there. But we see it on agriculture Twitter, on Facebook, where, where you have people involved in agriculture that are tearing down other parts of agriculture and the animal rights groups, whether it be in Canada, here in the U.S., they pick up on that. And uh, I, I think a post when, when ranchers were recently called nasty and lazy – a part of that Facebook post by uh, a soon-to-be former, uh, a former uh, veterinary board member, uh, Miss Kessler, down there in Colorado, she throws in there that, well, cattle ranchers aren't making money anyways. Why, why are they a part of this business? And for all of our producers out there that, yeah, I get it's frustrating. And, and we are, and when I speak to groups across the nation, I always talk about where we are, we're trained to react at such a young age on a farm or ranch. We're trained to go shut that gate. You know, don't let that cow, uh, you know, get out. Uh, we're, we're trained to have those animals on, on, on top of our minds, and we have to react fast to make sure that we're safe, that our animals are safe, and we are just trained to react. But I always tell folks you can't overreact, especially on social media, because these groups that disagree and want to see animal agriculture end, they take that. And when you put it on Facebook, it's there. Even if you delete it, people screenshot. So I've seen so many posts from anti-animal agriculture advocates that are saying, well, why, why, why should we have these cow-calf producers running on public lands in Montana? They're not making money. They're taking away, in their view, part of the multi-use uh, of our public lands. Sorry, this is just kind of Lane's rant. But it's so important for us to think about that. Um, uh, Jay, I know I know you're standing by here, too. What, what uh, Obviously, grizzly bears are, are the big focus for, for Montana right now. Maybe share an update on that, but also how... Uh, agriculture groups are, maybe are working or uh, ways that we can work with our friends in the outdoor industries. I mean, I'm an avid hunter. Um, I, I like to see both sides of it, but I'm probably more biased towards agriculture. What, I guess, what are what, what's that perspective from the Montana stock growers? Yeah, so certainly I think from uh, Montana, so we're not nearly as populated as some of our other surrounding states, much like Colorado, but we see uh, as a forecast of what happens in some of these more populated states that, uh, you know, those trends come to Montana. It may take a year or two or five, uh, but they're coming. And so at least it gives us um, an opportunity to uh, get out in front of that potentially. Uh, it's not without a tremendous amount of work and some successes, maybe not some. Um, but I think it is important. To, you know, it was recognized, you know, the sportsman lobby uh, is a strong voice, certainly in our state also. Um, you know, we have a lot of valued wildlife here that a lot of folks uh, come to hunt and, and enjoy. And um, certainly when we have parts of Yellowstone National Park and Glacier Park here, um, you know, those visitation rates are just through the roof and they're continuing every year breaking records. So we know that people are coming to Montana. They, they value that. Um, and then some of those folks want to, to hunt also. And so when we look at that, um, you know, we have tried to partner in a lot of cases with um, some of these sportsman groups. 
Um, some are a little bit more willing to work with uh, us versus others. And so you try to uh, find those groups where you can find common ground. Um, let's look at some, you know, realistic objectives of wildlife. Um, not, more is not always better from a wildlife perspective. And, and so we have to come from those perspective of, you know, from an agricultural um, you know, a, a reasonable amount is good from a sportsman, more is better because then I have a, uh, a increased opportunity to, to, to be successful. And so we do, we, we do recognize that we do, um, um, try to set up those kind of meetings also with those groups and, uh, and talk through many of those issues that, uh, that Terry kind of mentioned also. Now, as you mentioned, uh, we are seeing a lot of people come and visit and hunt and recreate, but we also have a lot of people moving to Montana. Yeah, I like having sound effects. Um, and again, you can't stop uh, you, you can't stop people from wanting to enjoy the Big Sky State, live here, and uh, I, I truly believe people do want to embrace that Western way of life, the rural lifestyle, even if it is just wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat in downtown Bozeman. They they want to be involved with it somehow. Um, so, and I, I see that as, uh, an advocate for ag and whatnot. We, we have to embrace these people as well. We have to show them what we are doing, but, uh, I think a good case study is looking down to Colorado again. Um, Terry, what is your advice for producers in, in Montana? Yeah, maybe even Wyoming, but Montana is really on the, the radar of folks moving, moving in. Um, what is your advice that the, in, that, that agriculturalists in Colorado have, learned maybe they've learned the hard way over the last 30 40 years of just such a big influx of people moving to colorado for the outdoors and uh what what should montana be bracing for yeah i think what colorado did fairly well in the 80s and the 90s um (laughs) was that they illustrated that the amenities that people were coming to colorado for were in large part provided by agriculture, maybe not the very highest of mountains and things along those lines, but uh, um, they, uh, the, the open spaces, the green meadows, the wild, where they see the elk roaming and things along those lines, that was provided by agriculture. So that, that actually in some counties even did studies to say, what would you pay for that view and keeping it that way? And so, you know, they equated it through a conservation movement and things along those lines. Um, what we didn't do was talk about, uh, you know, the land, the land piece was actually easier than the livestock pieces, mm-hmm. the production agriculture piece. We have been trained from an early age. We trained it. We, I was trained. We were all trained in 4-H and FFA. Don't say slaughter. Don't tell people what happens in the packing plant. Don't tell about how we work cattle. Don't tell about any of that stuff. Just lean over it. I think that's the mistake that we've made. As people become removed from agriculture, they don't have that wrinkle in their brain that houses those memories. It's none of us because we grew up in those situations. But let's say going to grandma and grandpa's or something like that and experiencing agriculture and that they don't have that they don't cherish that it hasn't shaped them in any way that's where i'm focused on in colorado and getting back to is creating a wrinkle in every every primary education child's mind 
um, through an outward bound scenario or something so that they, they cherish something about agriculture. Because once you don't, you question it. You immediately are suspect of it. That's the mistake that can't be made uh, in Colorado. Because, you know, listen, in Colorado, for the first time five years ago, people valued agriculture not for the food it produces, but for the open space it produces. Mm-hmm. Agriculture producers are the second most trustworthy people in Colorado, next to firemen and women, until they talk about how they raise their animals and they drop way down. Yep. So the, those are the things that you have to focus on. I think talking about natural resources is great and good, and people will appreciate you for it, but they're really going to question how you raise your animals. Very, very good points. And gentlemen, I know we're coming up on almost an hour of conversations here, and I know you got a lot to, to do, and Jay, I know you have a long drive ahead of you to, to get to northeastern Montana. But uh, any last comments that you would just like to share with our, our audience here today, whether that's on this issue? Um, I mean, we could talk about that JBS $52.5 million settlement, but we don't, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sit here too long, but I guess, yeah, Jay, I'll just do it. Jay, what, 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 what as we look at that $52.5 million settlement, what, uh, what concerns do the stock growers have and making sure that that investigation, uh, other investigations continue on? I mean, from from just a layman's terms here, I mean, it, it writes guilty all over it to so many people on Facebook. But uh, I know uh, I know you probably have to give an association answer. But uh, what what's uh, what what's the stock growers uh, thought on that and frustration with that announcement? Well, I think certainly, um, you know, we're similar to what some of the other states as we're looking at this, you know, when this investigation was originally put in place by the Department of Injustice, I think there was a lot of certainly um, interest. We would like to see an uh, investigation put in place. We'd like to see it conducted and we'd like to see it finished. And so some of the concerns that, you know, we've raised and our members have raised is that now when you have one entity just simply writing a check and saying, I'm out, I'm good. Um, and, and that's where things end. That is a huge concern because we'd like to, one, get to the bottom of things. Is there an issue? Is there not? If there is, we'd like to fix it. And so we have, you know, a, a huge, huge concern that uh, simply just being able to write a check um, uh, removes you from the conversation or the investigation. Uh, I think that's the, the wrong route to go. So I guess our hope is that the Department of Justice, you know, continues on with this investigation. Uh, they do a thorough investigation, but once again, uh, we'd like to see them pick up the pace because we've, we're moving in on two years and simply, uh, you know, we can't afford to wait that long for these type of investigations to be conducted, finished, and, and, and wrapped up. Terry, your, your thoughts and uh, from the Colorado Cattlemen's perspective? <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, JBS is in Colorado, right? And uh, their headquarters are. And I, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind. I agree with what Jay said, so I won't belabor those those points. But I, you know, I often think about, um, you know, just optically, it is common sense to say that that if there was there was some uh, manipulation of price in in uh, sale of those retail products that those dollars didn't travel back through the system. And if you're going to do it on one side, top side of your ledger, why wouldn't you do it on the bottom side of your ledger as well? That, that's how margins created. And uh, 
Um, I, I agree that the investigation needs to take place, but I also think that, you know, a hundred plus year old law doesn't match modern business practice. So if there's anything that government should be involved in is, is looking at that and working on that. It isn't setting the price for our products. I find that ironic that we're even having that conversation. What we need to be doing is creating the leverage to create value and price discovery. Um, we shouldn't create price discovery on a minimum price level. I learned that in Econ 101. Um, but uh, I, th I think that we have to take an aggressive, hard look. And by nature of a settlement and dismissal of a case, doesn't mean that justice doesn't continue their work. In fact, this should reinvigorate them to dig even deeper um, into it because uh, until we find some solution to this, and listen, people just want an ounce of flesh, and I get it, and maybe they don't get that ounce of flesh in the end of, end of the day, but they certainly don't get anything if it's if an investigation and the resulting effects of an investigation are incompetent. So that's where I think USDA has to step to the plate in justice much more strongly because they're culpable in this too if they don't they don't look into it deep enough. Well, again, thank you both for those perspectives from your uh, respective agriculture organization. And uh, again, I think we've had a great conversation. I could keep going, but uh, I just think it's great how Montana and Colorado and all the surrounding states in the West ha have come together, whether it was uh, holding meat in days in our various states to support Colorado producers uh, that uh, went up against meat out day um, and seeing industries come together, seeing people within the industries that do not get a Long that that don't uh, see eye to eye on certain policies we need to do that more in agriculture coming together being a voice that's what we have to do uh, to have a sustainable future uh, in the industry and playing a role in being stewards of our land and and also uh, stewards of wildlife and habitat as well but uh, again thank you so much and I, I should point out of course Colorado Cattlemen's is the uh oldest livestock organization in the nation 154 years is that right terry it is 154 years old doesn't mean we're necessarily that special <laughs> it just <laughs> means we're the oldest <laughs> and uh, you've only been you know you've only been there what two years in this position <laughs> Yeah, just two plus 20. <laughs> and Jay, uh, of course, the Montana Stock Growers uh, 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 being a voice for, for uh, when, when was Stock Growers formed? Uh, eight, 1880s, I know. 84. 84. 18, yep, before the state was a state. That's true. But again, there's a reason for these organizations, for their longevity, is because they are a voice for the producers in the countryside that are working day in and day out on those operations and improving our landscapes and our animal herds as well. Um, gents, I, I thank you so much for your perspectives, uh, for uh, sharing uh, so many different topics here today away from the, the wolf topic. But uh, I will let you get going unless you have any last words yeah, you guys would just like to throw in there. Just appreciate everything you're doing, Lane. Yep, similar here, Lane. Yeah, it's always a great opportunity to visit with our neighbors and, and visit with you and, and talk about the most important industry that we have in the country. 
That is very true. Again, thank you so much to Terry Fankhauser with the Colorado Cattlemen's and Jay Bodner with the Montana Stock Growers for joining us, talking mainly about wolves, but so many other issues impacting our rural communities and growing communities across the West. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.